I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye and you are listening to the podcast that helps you with your relationship with exercise, with food, with your body, with yourself. And today we're talking about your relationship with alcohol. It's January. It's a popular time of year to be thinking about this. And I think today's guest, Amanda White, a therapist and author of the book, Not Drinking Tonight, is the best person to have this conversation with because Amanda has the personal and professional experience to really talk on this topic, but also I think gives a lot of people who are wanting to think about their relationship with alcohol but don't feel like they identify with any extremes the language and understanding of how to do that and in a really gentle and compassionate way so I really think you're going to get a lot from this conversation. Of course before we get into that a couple of announcements. Firstly The Train Happy Journal was released in the UK before Christmas and it comes out in the US shortly on the 18th of January. I hope you've pre-ordered your copy. If you're based in the US, you can find the link in the show notes. But I just wanted to say for anyone who has a copy of the Train Happy Journal, which is a 30-day journaling challenge to help you learn how to train happy, move your body intuitively, and just start enjoying movement again then I think you will enjoy the support group I have created on Facebook. You can find a link in the bio. It's the Train Happy Journal community. And I think so far people have just shared their journeys and where their kind of starting points are with all of this. And I think you are so connected and yet often we feel so alone in these thoughts and experiences and you are not alone there are so many like-minded people who are wanting similar things who are ready to support you so make sure you join the facebook group if you've got your copy of the journal and are wanting people to cheer you on as you do the journaling challenge of course i should say as well we have our last few spots left for the greece 2022 train happy retreat i can't wait I feel like we all need a break. We all need some sunshine and clear blue waters. And like I said, that supportive group to help you work on your relationship with moving your body, work on your relationship with yourself, and just an opportunity for some true R&R. If you're interested in the Train Happy Retreat, then you can find the information for that also in the show notes. And of course, we are back with this week's Train Happy Trooper of the Week. This week's Train Happy Trooper is Kristen, and Kristen said, Hi Tally, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and so I wanted to share my train happy moment after listening to the episode about Jillian Jillian Michaels, I should say. I recently went to America for two weeks on holiday. We did lots of walking, but no planned exercise and lots and lots of eating yummy food. It was incredible. During the entire trip, I felt no feeling of guilt or anxiety around food or exercise. It was so freeing, relaxing, and joyful to be on a holiday 
eating my heart out but eating mindfully and just living in the moment without any worry about not exercising or having to burn off the food I was eating. I was just living in the moment and even when I returned home I have felt zero feelings of guilt or concern about having to get back into my exercise routine exactly where I left off. Instead I'm easing myself back into things and I feel really excited to start moving my body again. Thank you for all you're doing for the fitness industry. Thank you so much Kristen for sending in that train happy moment and I think it's a really even though you're speaking about holiday I think which is a vacation for those who (laughs) don't know. I think that's really um, reflective of how we've been with this Christmas and New Year break and that I'm just really glad that you've just had that compassion for yourself to just ease back in rather than feeling like everything has to go 100 miles an hour and everything has to be perfect and like you say like back you know back to where you were. This is the year for easing in so please keep easing in this January. If you would like to be featured as Train Happy Trooper of the Week and share your Train Happy moment, please DM us at Train Happy Podcast on Instagram or you can email us trainhappypodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to hear more from Kristen, then make sure you check out the rest of her Train Happy Trooper profile over on our Instagram account. Okay, enough from me. It is time to hear from the brilliant Amanda White. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to be connecting with you, albeit virtually, but we are connecting because I've admired your work for a long time and I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited to chat with you. Um, I feel the same. So it's so great to, you know, we chat on Instagram via DM, but it's so nice to actually talk live. (laughs) That's why I love this podcast because basically anyone who I really enjoy on social media I'm like I need to talk to you and fortunately a lot of people I enjoy have written books and so they're like I'd love to talk to you and we can talk about my book and this is great and you are one of those people because um you have a book coming out this month um called Not Drinking Tonight and I'd love to yeah I'd love for you to firstly kind of tell people who you are and why the book Not Drinking Tonight. Yeah absolutely um So I'm Amanda White. Um, You might know me on Instagram from Therapy for Women is my handle. Um, And yeah, I wrote this book because when I was exploring my own relationship with alcohol and getting into recovery from an eating disorder myself, I felt like I was drinking too much and I didn't really feel like I was an alcoholic and I didn't really know what to do or what the you know, what the options were. And um, I felt like my drinking was kind of like Russian roulette. Like, yes, bad things sometimes happened when I drank, but not always. And I didn't lose my job. I didn't, you know, get in – I didn't go to jail. I didn't get into a car accident or do these things that we kind of say is what an alcoholic looks like. But it was making my life worse and I could see the path that I was on. And I really wanted to write a book where people could explore in a non-stigmatizing, non-label way their relationship with alcohol and um, their relationship with any you know behavior that numbs us, and explore it so that um, people can really. I f- I kind of say that the book is kind of like um, 
it's kind of like informed consent. A lot of us never get mm-hmm. that full understanding of what alcohol is, what um, it does to us, what the effects are, and we don't get to explore it in a way that's non-stigmatizing. So my hope is regardless of whether someone stops drinking after reading the book or just cuts back, that they have informed consent around alcohol consumption. Yes, I think that's such an important aspect of the book and and of the work you do because I think people just think you either drink or you don't and they don't explore the kind of, and like you say in the book, like you either label yourself as an alcoholic or you're not and there's no room for an in-between. And I think it's the same, and we'll definitely talk about this today, it's the same with people with their relationship with food, with their relationship with exercise. It's like you either have a full-blown eating disorder or you're fine. And there's so much gray area in the middle where we have these complicated you know, uh, stressful, difficult, you know, anxious relationships with these things. And yet we don't know how to address them. And we don't think that there's another way because we're just doing what everyone else is doing, right? So I think it's so important um, that you kind of tie that in. And I know you've hinted at your own story then, but I'd love to go into it a bit more detail because you are a therapist and you've also had your own journey with alcohol, with food as well, and with, yep. with an eating disorder and recovery journey. So I would love to just to hear how you even came to become a therapist in the first place, because I know you hadn't necessarily figured this stuff out, you know, as a therapist, like this, this was an ongoing thing. So where did it all begin? Yeah. So I always struggled with an eating disorder growing up, um, I struggled with bulimia. So I knew it was a problem. You know, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of as someone who has bulimia, you know that you probably shouldn't be doing this. Um, But when I first drank alcohol, it felt great. It felt like I had a lot of social anxiety growing up and it felt just like I was a cooler, better version of myself essentially. And then as I kept drinking more in college, um, my uh, relationship with alcohol kind of escalated more. I got into using Adderall because that became a great way, I thought, to control my appetite. And um, as I drank more, Can I, I started – Yeah. We don't have Adderall as such mm. in the UK. I've heard about yeah. it I consume enough American media. But can you just explain what it is? Is it legal? Is it a legal substance? It is legal, but it's a prescription okay. drug. Right. Um, so you're not supposed to take it without a prescription. Um, but I did have a prescription because it's fairly easy in the U.S. to get a prescription for Adderall. Okay. Um, and it's a stimulant. Right. So it's used to treat ADHD um, mm-hmm. and it kills your appetite and it's kind of a stimulant. And it's often known as like a study drug in college because it like helps you focus. Um, but you can also kind of get a high from it. Okay. So people – mix it with alcohol a lot of times when they like go out too. Okay. So yeah. yeah. So I can see the attraction. Yeah. At college age. <laughs> yes, exactly. And um, and then I loved it because it killed it completely kills your appetite. Um, so I thought that it was great and got very into it. And um, it just kind of escalated from there where um again, like on paper, I didn't look like, yes, I did crazy things in college and probably drank more than some people, but my whole friend group and just as a college student, you know, we all drank a lot. We all used to wake up the next morning and laugh about the ridiculous things that we did. And if I would have told people that I had a problem with alcohol, they wouldn't have said, 
they would have said, yeah, like maybe you should drink less. But it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't drinking every day. I wasn't drinking by myself. I was partying a lot. Um, and after college, it kind of continued that way. I tried to cut down and moderate. And every time I was really trying to get into recovery from my eating disorder because I wanted to be a therapist. And every time I got some time in my eating disorder recovery, when I would drink, I would end up relapsing. And it was just this continuous pattern where no matter how much time in recovery I had, I would relapse when I got drunk. And I knew that maybe I was drinking too much and I was lucky enough to be um, in therapy already and my therapist was kind of like, why don't you take a 30-day break? Why don't you try and see? And I did, um, but I was kind of white-knuckling it the whole time. I was doing it to prove that I didn't have a problem with alcohol. I thought that, well, if I can just say that I didn't do – you know, I didn't drink for 30 days, then I know I don't have a problem and I can go back to drinking how I want. But I did that and I still kept relapsing and I just got really sick of recognizing that I kept breaking promises to myself. You know, I would say that I would drink less and I wouldn't. I would get into fights with friends. I would, you know, do things. I would leave people at bars. I would sleep with people I didn't want to sleep with. And it was just destroying my self-esteem, especially as I was trying to build back my self-esteem because I had so much shame from my eating disorder. And kind of the tipping point for me was I got really drunk one night and I taught yoga at like 6 a.m. in the morning and I taught yoga still drunk at the time. And it was a big wake-up call for me. I mean, it wasn't necessarily my worst drunk or my worst thing that I had done, but I really had a moment of listening to my inner dialogue, thinking about how am I going to become a therapist? How am I going to do what I want to do in my life? if I keep drinking this way. And that was the last time I drank. Um, I didn't necessarily think I would never drink again, but I tried to, you know, initially I was just like, let me just try to stop drinking for a couple months and see how it goes. And um, I just found moderating to be really exhausting and it was much easier to not drink than to try to moderate and cut back. And did you find from then on that your eating disorder recovery kind of journey was a little bit smoother and you were able to really make progress with that as well. Yes. It made a huge difference with that because, you know, eating disorder recovery is trying to reconnect with your body. It's trying to get in touch with how you feel, listen to your, you know, hunger and fullness cues, listen to how it feels to, um, you know, move all of this stuff. It's such an internal process. So it created so much dissonance when I would then get drunk and totally leave my body, you know, or be Mm -hmm. reliant. Like it's hard to build confidence in social situations and feel good about yourself if you're dependent on a substance to leave your body to do things like that. I want to talk about both the alcohol and the eating disorder in the sense of, because I've spoken about this a lot from my own experience and on this podcast about how, and you talk about this in your book as well, about how often these are our coping mechanisms. And they're just, at the time, they're, they're getting us through the difficult thing. But in a long term, when we, you know, when we look at it long term, it's not uh, healthy and it's not actually going to help us in the long term even though it helps us survive in the moment um yes and when you were kind of 
working towards becoming a therapist was it like oh my goodness all these things I'm trying to do to just actually just deal with being a human um and I'm just trying to numb and distract and cope um how long was it for you to kind of draw those kind of those dots together and 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 figure that out because I know for me it was like going to therapy myself like oh okay now I've got the food thing I'm good with the food you know I'm good with the exercise stuff oh I didn't there was all this other stuff that's what I've been trying to like distract myself from and trying to you know just pull myself away from because I just I don't know how to feel this stuff absolutely and I think a lot of us never learn that I mean we don't grow up in a family that teaches us how do you feel your emotions? You know, we don't grow up learning what a boundary is or how to set them or, um, you know, how to take care of ourselves, any of kind of these basic things we don't learn. So yeah, that was kind of my process. I kept feeling like with my eating disorder, I would make progress and then I would lean into drinking much more to deal with my emotions. And then I would take that 30-day break from drinking. And then, you know, a lot of times I would lean back into my eating disorder or I would end up um, doing other unhealthy coping skills like becoming obsessed with dating, you know, things like Mm. that or becoming obsessed with being perfect, like working, you know, thinking I could have perfect grades, things like that. So that is kind of my whole belief is we have to look at it like – um the surface behavior, right? In my book, I have a I have a metaphor of an iceberg and the surface behavior can switch. We can use working hard. We can use gambling, drugs, eating behaviors, you know, over-exercising, all of these things to cope with what's going on underneath, which is emotions, trauma, shame, pain, you know, all of these things that we're all dealing with because we never learn how to actually cope with them. We just use something a lot of times to mask and numb what's going on. Yes, and it's beca- and you're right. And I think it's so interesting that how when we lose that that coping behavior, say we recognize that we have a disordered relationship with food, and or you know an eating disorder, and we we recognize that and we go, okay, I need to work on this because this isn't serving me, and you know I know this isn't going to help me long term so you work on that and you get to a better place with food but then you're right like often you do find another thing and I I think you also listed things in your book like shopping as one of them like yes spending um I would add to that and I don't know if you recognize this in in your kind of therapy practice but I you know a lot of people really obsess with cleaning and that perfectionism element and you know constantly having busyness Yes. yes, not being able to sit down, not being able to relax, always yeah. needing to do something. Because always. when we sit, that's when we feel our emotions a lot of times. Because when we sit, we don't know how to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I feel like this is a conversation I repeatedly have on this com- in, on this podcast to a degree because I think this is a thing that I really relate to. And, and one of the things I kind of want to drive home to people is like, we don't know how to just exist without feeling like we should be productive in some way we should be doing something and to just sit and be with your thoughts and your brain is like quite terrifying quite terrifying (laughs) um yeah I wanted to I want to rewind a little bit and talk about why we discussed this kind of idea of disordered drinking and why you don't like the label alcoholic I think let's start there 
um, and talk about this disordered drinking and, and how we can may, may be able to recognize that in our own behaviors and people around us. So why are you opposed to the term or the, the label, I think, of alcoholic? Yeah. Well, to start with, to create some context, the word alcoholic doesn't have even a medical or psychological definition. Um, in terms of if you're trying to diagnose someone, there are not criteria in the DSM, which is what therapists and psychiatrists use to diagnose for the word alcoholic. So it's kind of more of a colloquial term that has been sustained because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, what exists now is alcohol use disorder, which is mild, moderate, and severe. But in terms of, you know, the word alcoholic still is extremely popular and what people use. And I'm against it because it really makes it seem like if you're quote unquote normal, you should be able to drink as much of an addictive substance as you want. And if you are quote unquote not normal and you're an alcoholic, you should never drink that substance. And it leaves out a huge portion of the population from authentically questioning their relationship with alcohol. And that's why I came up with the term disordered drinking because if we, you know, the word disordered eating exists and we know that if you engage in patterns of disordered eating, you are more likely to develop an eating disorder. But there isn't really that match for it kind of seems with alcoholism, you're either, again, you're drinking as much as you want and then you might all of a sudden become an alcoholic. It kind of says that you're born with this. Mm -hmm. There's no conversation about risk factors or how it might develop or how you might be more likely to abuse alcohol if you've been engaging in certain patterns. And it prevents people from questioning it and being curious about their behavior. Yeah, because there's, there is the societal element into it. And, and I don't doubt that there are people who, you know, alcohol, alcoholism or you know that that um that severe disordered relationship with that alcohol is in the family and you can you know we can see that in in various you know in various families but there can't we we can't um not talk about the societal influence and it's like one of those things is it nature is it nurture and the element of like how growing up in a certain society the way we talk about diet culture and how okay that might not be the sole reason someone develops an eating disorder but it's a huge factor and so what are these external influences that are causing us and what are these kind of cultural norms that are causing us to have this disordered relationship um what in your mind, what are those influences and what are you seeing in kind of like modern society that is making it a lot more acceptable to have a disordered relationship with alcohol? Yeah. So I think that there are a couple of things. I think in the same way that uh, diet culture exists, there is a culture of alcohol consumption. Like, I mean, there are alcohol companies that want to sell us alcohol. And what happened fairly recently is They learned that women were an untapped market, so they started marketing to women more specifically a lot more. That's where we kind of got white girl rosé and, Mm. you know, we drink wine with The Bachelor. And if you look at – part of my research that I did was I looked at kind of ads from Kim Kardashian, and it's amazing to see – you see Kim Kardashian selling Nutrisystem, and then you see Kim Kardashian selling alcohol – 
And I really got to both of these things are selling us the same thing. They're selling us the idea, right? It's a different avenue to get it, but it's the idea that if we drink this or take the supplement to look this way, we'll be happy, we'll be fun, we'll be outgoing. So that's a really big part of it. And I talk a lot in the book about just the overlap of diet culture and alcohol culture. Yes, because it's kind of, particularly with the alcohol thing, it's one of those things where you want to be cool, you want to fit in. I don't know about you, but I grew up very much wanting to be cool, popular, and to fit in. Yes. And a lot of my behaviors and a lot of things I wanted to do and believed in were, you know, were influenced by things I was reading, what celebrities were doing, what I was reading in magazines, you know, and that was without the influence of social media because I'm just, you know, that little bit older to have like not grown up fully being online. But I can't imagine, you know, even influencers now seeing, yeah, alcohol brands working with celebrities. I mean, the influence of Kim Kardashian is kind of unmatched. So yeah, it's huge. And I'd love to know more about that kind of crossover with that kind of alcohol culture and, 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 and uh, diet culture in in your view. Yeah. I think that what's interesting is we kind of forget that alcohol is, you know, an addictive substance, unlike food. So what I often see is that people who are trying to get into recovery from their eating disorder or vice versa, they're trying to get into recovery from alcohol use. They then end up saying, well, food is addictive. Food is a drug. I must cut out whole food groups because I feel addicted. And what I talk about in my book is that it's not actually food that's addictive. We know alcohol is addictive. You can live without alcohol. What we get addicted to in our eating disorder is the feeling of being in control, the feeling of being in control of our food, our body weight, our shape. We get addicted to the idea that we can change ourselves and have a totally different life if we just look different. And that's what's different compared to alcohol. Um, And essentially, that overlap is really important um, because we can replace it with other things too. So I kind of say like the root of alcohol and diet culture is the same, but how it manifests is different. Mm, Yes. Um, Yeah. Because it's it's one of those – like you say, it's one of – it's – it's also that element of that control, that distraction, um, and that, you know, element of like, I can be in charge of my body and somehow, and whether it be to make it smaller or to kind of be this, uh, I don't know how to describe it, you know, this kind of bigger version of yourself in the sense of your personality, your confidence, um, you know, to have that courage to like really be who you are, um, which I think is really sad because I think it's sad that we don't feel, we don't have that natural instinct, that kind of bravery to just be who we are. And I, I think that's, that's like a huge part of the problem. Absolutely. And right, like, yes, I think starving ourselves, exercise, those things can be addictive, but we also like you said, I mean, we we want to be thin. We want to change our body. We want to look a certain way because of media and what society says is good and mm. is valuable and you are treated differently if you're in a different body and you have access. I mean, like, you know, pretty privilege and thin privilege, they all exist. Yeah. So it's not just 
right? The food or lack of food that's addictive, it's being a certain way. In the same way that you're treated differently if you're a chill girl, if you're mm-hmm. calm, if you're not uptight, if you're go with the flow, if you're spontaneous, all fun of these time, things. Like, yeah. Like girl, but like it's fun and you're like fun and free and cool and yeah, you're not uptight and you're not, mm-hmm. yeah. Or that's really interesting actually, that perspective, like just thinking through a kind of like that feminism perspective, that feminist perspective of trying to live up to, especially you know, as a kind of straight cis woman, yep. you know, who you think, you know, who you think men would want you to be. They want you to yes. be small. They want you to be outgoing, fun, you know, a bit flirty, adventurous. Not dramatic. Yeah, not, you know, just all of it. And that's so interesting that, yeah, all, a lot of these things are ways we try to make ourselves seem more appealing mm-hmm. um, to that kind of male gaze. And yeah, I'm not, I'd not really kind of like put those things together, but you're so right. You're so right. And I think too, it's like all of these things are ways that we control our emotions in some way. Mm. And people sometimes say, well, how can you be addicted to control if you have a substance use disorder because your life is out of control? And it might look out of control, but you are in control of being able to numb and turn off your emotions. And I think that's really what's behind most addictive behaviors, whether it's not being able to sit still, whether it's shopping, gambling, you know, an eating disorder, um, sex, you know, destructive relationships, it is being able to control how you feel, escape, and numb on some level. So if we're if we're numbing, actually one of the things I wanted to talk about to you about was this idea of how these things are coping mechanisms and how they're helping us cope from trauma and I just thought you just really clearly explained what trauma was in your book and I thought it would be really great to talk about that on the podcast because I think you know with the with pages like yours on Instagram where you know there's a whole there's like been a whole wave of kind of access to therapists and that kind of work on Instagram as so they were talking about trauma talking about all these things and yet we might not actually fully have like a definition locked down or, or we might not quite fully understand what it is we're talking about what is trauma um and how we how may we kind of experience that yeah so I think the important distinction is I think almost all of us have some level of trauma and not everything is trauma. So trauma is anything that happens to you. It's not the experience. It's about how you process and internalize it. Trauma shakes our sense of self. It changes who we are fundamentally. um, And it's any experience that really does that for us. So what might be traumatic for me might not be traumatic for you and only that individual can kind of assess whether that event shook their sense of self, changed them, really deeply impacted them. What was the phrase you said in the book as well? It's like something that happens to you like too fast, too soon, and it's like too much to deal with. And I think I'm paraphrasing there, so please clarify. Yeah, Yeah, it's anything that's too much, too fast, um, too soon. Yeah, I I think that's a really like nice, succinct way to think about it. And it's, and that kind of like just too much, kind of like overwhelming something to process and really kind of get your head around. Um, Because I think 
there is this thing where we think of trauma as only being like a really severe thing and and you know and we think of it as you know like sexual assault or to a certain degree of severity um and yet it can be yeah I think certain like you say that that feeling of of it's a very individual thing to you and and your experience of a situation and it doesn't necessarily have to be an act being done that you've you know being a part of if you know what I mean right I hope I'm explaining that well (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and that is why you know smaller things or things that we don't consider trauma can absolutely be traumatic like for some person losing their job could be traumatic Mm. um ending a relationship, being cheated on, parents getting divorced. You know, any of these things can really shake your sense of self, shake your sense of identity, um, be too much, too fast. Your brain can't – like anything that your brain can't process well and essentially trauma kind of is something that – it's an experience that gets stuck and it can't fully process it also. And that is what changes your sense of self and overwhelms us. And in your view, I mean, I appreciate you will have a a therapy bias. Yeah. Um, (laughs) To be honest, probably so do I. Um, For those people who are like, I've definitely, this is like resonating with me. I feel like I have definitely got trauma in my past and things that I, but I don't think I ever dealt with it. Mm -hmm. What do you do in that instance? Then obviously we learn bad coping mechanisms like drinking and dieting and disordered eating and disordered exercise and etc from kind of society as a whole but what are the like what what are your recommendations on actually how to to process and cope and deal with these things that don't involve yeah. you know having a disordered relationship with anything hopefully yeah and i think a way to talk about it too is to recognize that it's not even that it's a bad coping skill. Yes. It's a coping skill that works until it doesn't. And it's a coping skill that might have more costs than benefits. And that's really how I encourage people to look at it of like – and that's why I say even in my book, like if you are in an unsafe environment, if alcohol is the thing that's like keeping your life together, if you're in an abusive situation, if you know you're just trying to get by – Maybe you shouldn't just try to stop drinking. Maybe you should try harm reduction and trying to kind of moderate and cut back a bit. Um, And I think that's valid. The problem, right, with alcohol, eating disorders, you know, gambling, shopping, whatever, is that it works until it doesn't. And then a lot of times it ends up causing us more problems than it's solving. Mm. So we end up, right, not only with all of the original stuff that we haven't dealt with because we've been numbing it. Yeah. But, you know, I'll speak for myself, right? I didn't just have all of the the trauma that I was avoiding by drinking and engaging in an eating disorder. I also then had to deal with the mess that I caused <laughs> because I was drinking too much, because I wasn't taking care of myself, because of the things that I was doing when I wasn't present in my life. And that's what gets hard is the hole kind of gets deeper and deeper and harder to climb out of. Did you feel like when you were addressing that kind of mess that you described um, through those coping mechanisms, do you feel like you had to kind of literally clear that mess up first before you could address that that 
iceberg under the surface of the water you know that it was like addressing those things first before you can really get to that deeper wound yeah I think it wasn't necessarily a perfect straight line um but I do think that that's really important of I'm a huge believer in just kind of like taking responsibility cleaning up kind of if you've hurt someone um, kind of doing all of that stuff because I think it's people hide from that a lot and it can be a really it can create so much shame and if you it can be really hard and scary to take responsibility um, and clean up that mess but I think that um, if you don't you can kind of sit with all of that shame for a really long time and it can prevent you from like you said dealing with the deeper stuff for sure mm. and so in your mind that things like therapy and different types of therapy can can really help you deal with that deeper stuff. Um, And what kind of therapy is it that you do? Because like I say that, I know there's like different types and and what are the kind of benefits of certain different types? I know you mentioned a a therapy that I'm aware of, but I fully, I do feel like I don't fully understand the EDMR therapy. Yeah. 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 I can explain that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I do, I mean, a lot of therapists do kind of a mix of different types of therapy. So essentially, one really great therapy – I do believe if you have trauma, seeing a trauma therapist can be really, really valuable. One thing that is really – you know, we know just based on their research really, really uh, effective is something called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which essentially allows you to – tap into trauma and process it in a way because essentially what happens – and not everyone who has trauma has PTSD, but um, essentially what happens when that trauma kind of gets stuck in your brain, so to speak, as we were talking about, your brain's goal is to um, desensitize you to it. Your brain's goal is to not have it be stuck, which is why you get flashbacks because your brain is almost trying to give you little bits of it to make it not scary and make it not mm. overwhelming. Obviously, your brain doesn't always do a good job of this, which is why you can end up with PTSD because it's too overwhelming. So what EMDR does is it allows you in a safe environment to bring up some of that trauma and learn how to sit with it with a therapist and reprocess it so you stop having flashbacks. Um, but whether you do EMDR or um, you also just do other types of trauma therapy too, that is kind of the whole goal is it's really helpful to work through some of that stuff because it can really be connected to drinking. Yeah, yeah. And 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 beyond – even do you feel like beyond drinking, I just think just generally dealing with your stuff is just yeah. like – eventually like I can't promise it it, that's it's a positive thing it's painful and challenging and hard but the long-term rewards are there and I I know you kind of talking about that you know risk versus reward element of of weighing up your options with all sorts of things um and whether it be your coping mechanisms or whether you choose to drink or not or give up completely it's the same with um therapy I think the short term is difficult the long term is a much more peaceful existence <laughs> which I I would like everyone to have if I'm honest absolutely and I think it's funny because it's like the opposite 
of what all these, you know, coping skills are, right? It's like drinking or an eating disorder is like a short-term reward and a long-term negative impact compared to therapy is hard in the beginning, but longer, you know, positive impacts on your life. Yeah. And, you know, we want quick fixes in life. Like we've all been brought up now, especially now with Amazon Prime, like goodness me, we want everything (laughs) to happen either today or tomorrow. Um, and anything that takes longer than that, it feels like, oh, why, why isn't this working? Yep. And whether that be with, you know, me talking about intuitive movement a lot, intuitive eating, those sorts of things. I think a lot of people are expecting like, oh, well, in 12 weeks, I'll be fine. Yep. And it's not as simple as that. It does take time and, and practice and, and challenging yourself. And then often when you feel like you're getting there, then you might take a few steps back to take a few steps forward. Yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, in light of – I kind of talk about this in my book. I talk about evolutionary psychology in my book of just, yes, like we are so – we get everything so instantly right now and we've kind of lost some of that tolerance, I think, of like patience, of working through things, of recognizing that things kind of – take time and we are living in a very different world than our brains were evolved to live in. You know, essentially our brains kind of stopped evolution. We stopped developing in the stone age and everything kind of became the technology wave and we kind of took evolution into our hands, so to speak, after that. So I think that's an also important thing to remember because, um, you know, our brains just aren't wired to be, you know, connected to billions of people to get things instantly, you know, to we weren't even wired if you think about alcohol, like we weren't wired to just have access to, you know, addictive substances all of the time and all of these things that just you know, are a result of our brains not being wired for this. And if we're going back to the whole trauma thing of like too much, too fast, too soon, and we think about how much access we have to the news right now. Yes. We have to all these things. I know like the particular time we're recording, it's like COVID is coming back with a vengeance yep. and it all feels a lot. And I, that is a collective trauma, isn't it? Like that, yes. that is. And, you know, we, we weren't, you know, <laughs> designed to have access to all of that we weren't we weren't meant to read like 20 headlines a day and yes you know be able to refresh twitter and see like everyone freaking out like we weren't going to know that um I think you write in the book like you're meant to know maybe up to 150 people in your life like that would yep, be the average exactly. that most people would know in their lifetime and yet here we are you and I both I mean with a larger platform and I you've got hundreds of thousands of people following you and having yep. access to you and likewise you can have access to all, all these people and their opinions as well like how are we men to process and cope with that absolutely yeah they did studies and 150 is the most that uh, we're supposed to ever know and if you think about it it makes sense we were supposed we were evolved to be in you know a group of people and we were evolved to care about what they thought of us because if they didn't like you and they kicked you out, it pretty much meant, you know, you weren't going to survive. So I think there's also this disconnect too of sometimes people think like there's something wrong with me. I care about what people think. I shouldn't. And I really want to remind people like it's okay. It makes sense that you care about what people think. It makes sense that you need people. You know, I talk in my book about the research of just how like loneliness is also a huge thing mm-hmm. that's really created um, 
you know, alcohol culture, drinking more, more eating disorders and stuff like that. I mean, like you said, in the pandemic, loneliness has, we've been even more isolated. So it's created all of this stuff, but we weren't meant to even just like live in a very small family unit and take care of everything. And, um, you know, there's a, we're just not designed for it. And in that loneliness, then we draw on those coping mechanisms, you know, that we, we rely on them harder because we're not meant to have that disconnect. We're not meant to have that. And so I think there'll be a lot of people who over the last few years have leaned harder on those coping mechanisms and especially alcohol. And I think, and, and food, to be honest, I think both. Um, And yeah, this, I mean, we're still kind of in the midst of it. We felt like there was a with a light at the end of the tunnel, but we're we're still kind of in the midst of it. Um, yep. And I don't know what advice do you have for those people who are like, yeah, I have been coping extra hard with alcohol. You know, I've noticed that that glass of wine I was having a couple of times a week has become a daily occurrence as I like, you know, finish work and put the news on, and I'm I just don't know how to cope with it otherwise. Like, what what are your thoughts with that? Yeah, and studies really show that we have been drinking more. I mean, especially women have been drinking much more during the pandemic. I think part of that also is, you know, women disproportionately have been negatively impacted by the pandemic with childcare, um, with lack of support, with being caregivers, all of that stuff. And my my first recommendation is not to beat yourself up. So many of us beat ourselves up and we think that if we're mean enough to ourselves, we will change. And that is 100% the opposite, especially when we think about drinking or an eating disorder. The more you beat yourself up, the worse you're going to feel. You're going to feel shame. And probably the number one way you deal with pain and shame is engaging in that exact coping skill that you're trying to change. So the more you beat yourself up, it's probably likely the more you're going to drink or the more you're going to engage in that eating disorder. So the first step for me is try to be compassionate to yourself and Mm. understand that these past years have been really hard and it makes sense that you are feeling this way. I saw something on TikTok actually recently. It was just a video of this girl saying like, if beating yourself up and speaking negatively to yourself worked, like it would have, you would have done it by now. It would, you know, you it would have happened by now but that the way we and I think this is an an interesting thing um and I see this um with my boyfriend that often he is so kind and considerate and generous and loving to other people so the only person he'll speak negatively to is himself because he doesn't want to be negative to other people he doesn't want to put that out there to other people but he will you know if something goes wrong for him and he thinks it's his fault he is his worst critic by far um and I think that's probably a really common thing that you know we are lovely people to others and yet we speak the worst to ourselves we say yes. things to ourselves we would never dream of telling another human being. Absolutely. Um, why do you think that is? It's a good question. I think we know being mean to other people doesn't work. I think we also tend to think of ourselves typically as good people and we know a good person doesn't, you know, or a nice person isn't mean to other people. Mm. But I genuinely think a lot of us think, 
if we're mean enough to ourselves that we will change. I know Mm -hmm. I did. I really thought I could beat myself into submission and that shame would be a great motivator for change for me. And it is just the complete opposite because human beings cannot stay in that place of shame for too long before we need an escape. And often that escape ends up being the thing that we're trying to change. It ends up being that, you know, alcohol, eating disorder, other addictive coping pattern. I mean, I think of this in the context of exercise and how people motivate themselves to work out and move their bodies. I would say if I was to do a survey of like a general population that the, the the majority of people would say, yes, I shame myself into exercise. And like, that's, that's a good thing. I thrive right. off of being told that I'm, you know, a piece of shit basically, or like, yeah. you know, you're, you, you know you're weak and lazy and whatever else it is you say to yourself um and we see that reinforced in exercise narratives all the time yeah, you know I media did all of that an episode on Jillian Michaels and and discuss like the biggest loser and like their whole yes. rhetoric was steeped in guilt and shame um and similarly with other you know big fitness personalities since then and you know I think that's definitely like a 2000s 2010s thing and I, I do feel like we're looking for a shift now in general in the UK even the people who are the biggest kind of fitness personalities are kind of doing things a bit differently they're not they don't shame people yeah um so I feel like that is changing but yet there's a whole generations of people who work in an industry who thought that was the way to work that was the way to like motivate people um and so we end up like beating ourselves up through these things and and we and I also think there's part of that going back to that kind of previous question about like why are people that way I think a lot of us are afraid to express anger Mm. and don't know how to express anger or frustration um and don't and are scared of conflict and so we feel that we can do that with ourselves we can you know take it all out on ourselves, take it all out physically on our body and you know, that can be through like abusing it through alcohol, through food, through exercise, you know, through like a really punishing workout because we don't quite know how to articulate it and give give it a vocab, you know, like um, one of the things I included in the Train Happy Journal was the wheel of emotions. And I'm sure you're super yes. familiar with that. But yes. I think when you look at all the, you know, the different emotions, you can break it down and break it down and break it down and get super specific on how you feel. And yet, none of us have that education. I don't know about what it's like in the US, but in the UK, we do not really have an education on that growing up. This is all stuff I have learned, you know, in adult life. Absolutely. And I mean, there's literally research that in America, at least, an average person only knows about five emotion words. Yeah. Five. And they know based on studies, it's called emotional granularity, which literally means the ability for you to identify how you're feeling an emotion word. The better, the more words you can identify, the more ways you can identify how you feel, the better your mental health outcomes are because emotions aren't just what we experience. They're also created within the context of our life, of our world. So if we only know a few emotion words, that's how we're going to feel the whole time. But if we know the difference between frustration and anger and pissed off and annoyed, then there's a lot bigger range for us to fully Mm. identify how we feel and it can 
make it so that we're less angry less often. Yeah, because we're truly able to communicate how we feel to people and we're able to express it without just without, you know, just relying on outbursts or these these kind of ultimately damaging coping mechanisms. Um, I know, and I hope my mum won't mind me saying this, I don't think she listens to the podcast, we're fine. (laughs) My my mum's gone to therapy and she speaks three languages and Mm. her therapist was like, for a woman who speaks three languages, like you really don't know how to say any words about from, you know, how to describe your emotions in English. Like you really you don't, you don't know really how, you know, you know, so many different vocabularies and yet you can't articulate how you're feeling. Like it's happy, sad, angry, you know, like off from my head, even just thinking of like how we can say like, oh yeah, I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm, you know, disappointed, frustrated. Like I can probably name maybe 10 if I was going to get into it. And yet there's so many we can get, we can get so specific and, and that's so important. I wanted to talk to you more about from an exercise perspective as well. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this as a therapist yourself. The whole premise of one thing I think people kind of really overgeneralize and and over rely on is saying exercise is my therapy. Yeah. And, you know, (laughs) exercise is my therapy. I'm all good. I, I, I'm all good. I just go for a run and I'm good. I, and I, you know, my mental health's great then. I'm fine. I, that's how I've dealt with it. I don't think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I believe exercise, you know, from my perspective, exercise is therapeutic. I think it can give you the strength and resilience to help you then actually do the hard work and to face the deeper stuff and to actually address the things that you're struggling to process and cope with and, and you know, talk about and feel. But I I think we're really, I think saying that can really oversimplify what we've been talking about today, really, and get us leaning hard on exercise as this coping tool, which we know over, you know, only having one coping tool is going to lead, is not going to like result um, in something positive. So what are your thoughts on it as a therapist? And if, if exercise isn't therapy, what you know, what other ways can we look after ourselves? Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you that exercise is not therapy. It is very therapeutic. It can be really, really helpful for our mental health. It's something I personally really rely on. It's like one of my most important coping skills. Um, I also think it's important for people to know that, and you talk about this a lot, right? Like exercise doesn't have to just be going for a run or Mm. doing a hard workout. You can get therapeutic benefits from walking, from stretching, from yoga, from gentle movement also. And it's really, right, like also about reconnecting with your body, like noticing what's going on, being in tune with it, um, which is really beneficial in helping you identify your emotions because if you're more in touch with your your body, you can identify a lot of our emotions start as that physical body sensation. Mm. Um, but it isn't therapy. I mean, therapy by definition is the therapeutic relationship. That is what makes therapy work. It's why we don't have therapy with someone that is our friend or our parent or our partner. It is an unbiased person who cares about our well-being and cares about what we care about. 
and we have trust in that relationship and they can say things to us that maybe someone else can't. You know, mm-hmm. that's what's so great about therapy is the context really matters. Someone can say something to you, your therapist can, that if someone else said it to you, you might not be receptive. You might not hear it that way. Um, it's like it's like a bird's eye perspective on your life. It's someone just to have like an objective view on something and to kind of help you figure stuff out. Um, and do you think, you know, I, I, I think when I kind of discuss this online, um, you get the odd people that go, like, yeah, but exercise is my therapy, blah, blah, blah. But also then people going, but maybe I think people only assume it can be talking therapy and that there are, there might be other therapies that might be helpful at, at different times and for different people and different personalities. And like, I know, for example, you can do like art therapy and mm-hmm. things like that. But is that still with, in a therapeutic relationship with a person, um, you know, where there's sort of some sort of guidance and, and oversight there as well? Yes. Yes. And that's what makes it different than just kind of engaging in, right? Like if you make art by yourself, it could be very yeah. therapeutic. But yeah, the relationship, the, the thing that makes it therapy, even doing EMDR or brain spotting, which is kind of a subset of EMDR, it's still within that context of you feel safe with that person um, and there's a relationship and trust there. But yeah, there are other like art therapy, things like that, that are a lot less just about talking and that there are more things where if someone doesn't feel like they're good at vocalizing how they're feeling can be really therapeutic and helpful. Yes, because like we said, that lack of vocabulary is hard when you want to talk about it. And I even know you can do kind of like dance therapy and stuff. So you can express Mm -hmm. it through movement. You can, you know, you can express it in other creative ways rather than just, I think everyone obviously pictures themselves like lying on a couch and you're sat there with like glasses, like halfway down your nose. (laughs) There's a box of tissues. I mean, the tissues come in handy, but um, I feel like every therapist must have at least two two or three boxes of tissues um but it doesn't have to be that kind of rigid if that's not for you absolutely and I think a lot of therapy these days is very much a conversation Mm. it's not just one-sided that person just sharing how they feel it is a dynamic you know conversation yes and and there's input there and there's kind of questioning like, okay, what, why do you think that? And I think that's really helpful, like you say, from that objective person to have that yeah. outlet for you. Um, and we are in January um, as this is released. And I know there's going to be a lot of people who may have hit their breaking point over the festive kind of break. Um, or who are approaching January. And I don't know if dry Jan is as big in the US as it is in the UK, but dry January is a real big thing here where a Mm -hmm. lot of people do stop drinking in January and they're really assessing their relationship with alcohol. Um, And so what is your kind of advice and starting point for those people? Um, And yeah, let's start there. And then let's talk about beyond January because I think that also kind of like you do as you kind of mentioned previously with your own kind of 30 days that you're like therapists that you the challenge of like not drinking for 30 days and I think a lot of people do that and then they're like yeah February 1st yeah give me that beer so what are your thoughts on dry January as a kind of a concept 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of, I mean, to me, anything that allows people to dip their toe into it, anything that allows people to question their relationship with alcohol is awesome. So even though maybe it seems like it's just like trendy, I'm just a really big fan of any reason that someone will question their relationship with alcohol. Um, I think the way to do it to make it more impactful is to actually be curious about it and not do it like I think some people do it like a cleanse. Some people do it because they're like, I'm going to muscle through this and prove that I don't have a problem or I'm going to lose weight. I was about to say, it's also very tied to, it can be very tied to that like whole health kick, new year, new me, diet culture, five January of like, I'm going to like reinvent myself as like the epitome of health. And I think there's that motivation behind it too for a lot of people. Totally. And if you go into it with that motivation, I don't think that you're going to change your relationship yeah. with alcohol. You know, just like a diet doesn't work yeah. <laughs> forever. If you're just muscling through not drinking, you're not actually digging into the deeper part of the iceberg. You're not actually working mm. on shame, trauma, anxiety, numbing, emotional health, right? Setting boundaries, mm. any of those things that are going to teach you how to not be reliant on alcohol. So to me, the most, you know, empowering way or the most impactful way to do a dry January is to be curious, is to recognize the role that alcohol serves in your life, is to recognize how you've been relying on it or using it to avoid your emotions or avoid setting boundaries um, and be honest about that. Yes. And I I personally think your book is a really great way to – a tool to help people do that and a great way to, like, help people figure that out because I have to say – myself, I have to say I I actually have a very – I think I have a – that the one that's the one thing I do have a good relationship with is yeah. alcohol, <laughs> which is nice <laughs> having had tricky relationships with other things but that's the one thing I'm like okay this isn't this is not an issue for me personally and yet I know so many people in my life who talk about that kind of anxiety of like mm-hmm. how much they struggle with anxiety anyway and the mental health anyway and then they're drinking at this time and then it's actually the kind of irony is that we're trying to numb and distract and like become this like alter ego version of ourselves. And yet as soon as that hangover the next day, it's like all that stuff comes to the surface and you can be a shell of yourself and be super anxious, you know, a very kind of, um, yeah, an exacerbated version of what you were trying to run away from. Um, which is the, is the irony. So, what do you think for those people who may may be doing that kind of like detox January, then going into February, start drinking again, and then they're like, oh my goodness, I feel like the anxiety is is horrendous. Yeah, I think it's something that people don't talk about and don't know how mm. much the actual substance of alcohol really, really impacts your mental health negatively. Um, yeah, I mean, because alcohol initially will – take you out of your body, will numb that anxiety for you. But what happens is alcohol is a depressant. So when you ingest alcohol while it's a depressant, your body always wants to be in homeostasis. So to counteract the depression of it, it will produce anxiety hormones like cortisol and other things in order to bring you back to homeostasis. And the problem is then the depressant leaves your body, right? The alcohol leaves and is processed. 
So what you're left with the day after is more anxiety because of the work that your body was doing to bring you back to homeostasis. And that's why anxiety often happens. It's why you a lot of times feel more anxious after you drink. Yes. I'm nodding along because I know um, my boyfriend could listen to this. (laughs) It would be very (laughs) helpful for him because I think it's a really common thing of like, you know, that, you know, there is that questioning of like, when I'm not drinking, I am a much better version of myself. And when I'm, but when I am drinking, I think I'm an even better version of myself, but post the drinking is actually when everything kind of falls apart. And I, I, I think that's the key, that, that part is the bit that we forget about because you get the high of being drunk, of being with your friends, whatever else, and having that fun side And then it's like, oh my goodness, it's like a whole 180 the next day. Yeah, exactly. Because I think initially, right, like it might relieve being anxious or nervous or having that internal dialogue, you know, judging yourself or things like that. But then in addition to just like chemically having more anxiety, you also are thinking about what you said or what you did and you're like combing through the night and then you might feel anxious about not knowing exactly if you piss someone off or mm. how things went. Um, and that leaves you not feeling great either and really impacts our self-esteem when we're, you know, one of the biggest things that negatively impacts our self-worth is when we go against our values and when we break our word to ourselves. So if you are in a place where you're saying you're not going to do something and then you do it because you're, you know, you're Uh, drunk or have alcohol in your system so you don't have as much control, it really sucks then waking up the next day and having to deal with, you know, breaking your word to yourself. It does. And I hope people listening have kind of, this has given them an opportunity to maybe question and they'll go on to kind of reflect on their own relationship with alcohol this month and beyond. Um, And yeah, I I can't recommend your book enough. Like I said, I felt like it was such an easy read, um, really clearly written, and it puts quite um, it puts a lot of pieces of the puzzle together, which I think is really important because, like you say, especially for those who are listening who are kind of trying to fight diet culture and that stuff as well, this is a this is a piece of the puzzle for a lot of people, and and we need Absolutely. to address it. Um, I finish every episode, Amanda, by asking everyone, what has been your most recent train happy moment? Mm, I love that. Um, I think recently I've just been enjoying like gentle movement more. Um, so I'm staying with my parents over the holiday and I've been walking around a lot because the weather is nice here in Florida. So that's just been really nice. It's like not worrying about, you know, I used to be so crazy about wearing a Fitbit and counting steps Mm -hmm. and walking around my bedroom at night before I could go to sleep. And it's just wonderful to um, just enjoy walking and enjoy gentle movement too. Yeah. And I have to say, I have been um, kind of adding to that. I've been isolating. Um, Jack's had COVID. I haven't, but I haven't been, I haven't been particularly well but it definitely 100% wasn't COVID um so I've just really had this opportunity to just give my body a physical break and 
oh my goodness, it's so much easier when you're in a good place. Yes. I have not once, I have not, you know, I've noticed myself be like, oh, you know, have like a, an old food thought come in or an old whatever thought, but you just go like, no, ignore that. You're good. And it's just like a whole different experience and it makes life a lot easier. I just can't, it, does. <laughs> it just makes taking breaks and like visiting your family and being out of your usual routine, like so much easier. Yes. I feel like the holidays, especially, or when I go on vacation are the moments where I'm so like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Cause it used to be such a production for me of like, when am I going to work out? How am I going to work out? Am I near a gym? What am I going to do? Am I going to be able to work out on Christmas? You know, all these things. And it's so wonderful to just be like, yeah, I'll move my body when and how it feels good. Yes. I a thousand million percent relate. So <laughs> I'm hoping that, yeah, I'm hoping that people have, may have had that experience this year or that you get that experience in years to come because it's really life-changing and you just enjoy your vacations and your holidays for what they are. And it's lovely. Yes. Amanda, it has been so lovely to chat with you. I really have enjoyed this discussion and I love your work. Anyway, where can everyone find you? Where can everyone get your book? Where can they support you? Yeah. So if you don't follow me on Instagram, my handle's at Therapy for Women. I'm also over on TikTok with you, you Tally. <laughs> um, but you can find my book anywhere books are sold, Amazon, um, book depository might be the easiest way in terms of getting it in the UK. Um you know, Barnes and Noble, all of those kinds of places. And you can also follow and learn more about me at my website, which is amandaewhite.com. I'll link all of that in the show notes so that everyone can find that for you. And I should say for those of you who would particularly, you would love Amanda's content on TikTok because she's quite the Swifty. Yeah. I think you're going to love that. So just yes. for the fellow Swifties, I think you'll love that. So just wanted to make sure that everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, have... Uh, yeah have an amazing new year and I wish you all the best with the book it's been such a pleasure to chat you too thanks so much Tally and that is it for this week's episode of the train happy podcast thank you so much for listening I hope you took something away from this episode and if you did please let me know by sending feedback you can find us on Instagram at train happy podcast or even better it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening as it really really helps to support and boost the train happy message and remember if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you then share your story with us via email trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too. And it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening and I will speak to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.